Are you curious about how you might have a more fulfilling work life? Well, you're not alone. In fact, the numbers show us that many of us want more fulfilling work lives. I'm Susan Mikriadon, your host. And as a finance director, ops director and leadership coach, who has lived and worked in many countries. I've met people who love what they do and people who don't. People who bring their full selves to work and people who won't. But one thing that I've learned that is common to us all is that we are all unique and have unique experiences and perspectives. So join me and my guests as we place a lens on the people side of work life and explore ways to let your uniqueness shine through by sharing insights, stories, strategies and techniques to inspire your work life. Today I am really delighted to be joined by Kave Sadeagin. Out in Colorado. (laughs) I hope I got that right, Kave. Welcome to Life Beyond the Numbers. Thank you. Thank you, Susan. It's great to great to be here. And yeah, thanks for making the time to chat. I'm looking forward to this. Me too. Now, your favorite word is just such a great favorite word. (laughs) Tell me what it is. I love the word why since I was three. Hasn't changed for better or for worse. So you were one of those kids who was why, 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 like we all were, but you've never stopped. I've, I've done my best. I think there were periods of time where I used it less frequently. And I definitely still do use it less frequently than I did as a kid. I have to, you know, for better or for worse, like maintain my social connections and relationships as an adult. And if I <laughs> maintain that, I probably would have no friends. But I regained permission to ask that question, I think, earlier on in my adulthood life. And that's given me a lot of permission to explore and, and create, I think. I just, I just love that word. When I think of you, Kave, I think of someone who creates. So were you always creative? I appreciate that. I appreciate that. Yeah, it's funny. I mentioned this, I think, to a couple of colleagues before, but it was only a few years ago that I felt comfortable even calling myself a designer or a creative. You know, I was born into a family of musicians. So my parents met in a traditional Persian band and they're both traditional musicians. And we were always music and poetry. And one is a refugee from Iran. They met in the States. There's a lot of like art and poetry and music for me growing up, but I never uh, saw myself as a creative. I Definitely. And I know this now, but I like was diagnosed recently with adult ADHD. And it turns out I've had ADHD this whole time. And as a kid, I just had to keep myself very busy. Only child, right? All those kinds of things. And we had a role in my house where there was no TV. And so I just had, I had no other choice but to make stuff. Honestly, Uh, it's the only way that I could keep myself entertained. So as a kid, yeah, I would just be like tinkering on the piano and writing music or getting out a sketch pad and trying to trying to sketch our, the cockatiels that we had in the house or, you know, whatever it was. But I never saw it as an explicit act of creativity. I just saw it as, as a necessity. And I'm very grateful that at an early age, I had exposure to flow. I mean, that's kind of one of the things. And once you once you're in that moment, and, and I mean, that's the kind of beauty of ADHD to a degree is that it, it it's not attention deficit. It's just, a, it's a different regulation of attention. 
And so I would find myself just getting so hyper-focused with like, let's say the piano and I would sit behind the piano and then five or six hours later, I would just sort of like come out of that experience having like written a song or just had been super hyper-focused and experienced flow as a result of that early on in my life. And I think that became my baseline. Like I just couldn't think of a better thing to pursue. Like once I had flow as a kid, anything else feels like a compromise. When you feel like you don't have those moments of achieving flow as an adult, it just feels so unfulfilling to a degree. So Wow. So do you have flow at work? I do less often, but I do still, which I am so grateful for. It's really hard to do that in a digital setting. And I think it takes a incredible amount of intentionality and awareness and collaboration and trust to do that in a digital setting, but I'm grateful that I, yeah, I have that, which is great. I work with a team that allows for that, that respects that. And it, it still, it's still there. It's, it's not intuitive. And I think you have to kind of create the space for it. Flow is not this like inherently efficient thing. And so I think to a degree we have to push up against our kind of social biases towards efficiency and productivity and time management and all that type of stuff, right? In order to achieve it. But if we can push up against that, just, yeah, the other end of it is incredible. Ironically, it's such a productive process flow. <laughs> Ironically, it's just not in the ways that we expect it to be. Yeah. And I think that probably creates tension for a lot, a lot of adults in the workplace. It's like, leave me alone. Maybe perhaps I can get on with this. And in the end, it'll pay dividends, but everybody's like, I need it now. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's this, I always think about this too. So it reminds me a little bit, as you were saying that I remember reading, this is a whole other tangent, but I got into philosophy for a little bit after the 2016 elections. I was like, let me just go back to ancient texts instead of reading like the latest commentary on things and, and see what's, what's lasted this long that I can really anchor myself around. And yeah, there was, Plato had mentioned this thing with this five regimes where he sort of thought aristocracy is the best form of government, the philosopher king, then we go to democracy, then oligarchy, then democracy, then tyranny. And I think the reason why democracy was so poorly ranked is because the masses oftentimes go for the short, the short-term gain, the, the immediate outcome. And when we are constantly going for like quarter to quarter earnings, or we're doing the short-term kind of approach, well, it will almost inevitably feel urgent, which then perpetuates dominant logic and status quo. So it ends up being really inequitable and actually perpetuates inequities. It is not at all fulfilling, I think, in the long run. It's a lot of dopamine, not serotonin. And it's just this, yeah, we are very myopic as, and that's inherent with a lot of capitalism, a lot of the way our evaluation and accountability structures are created and the way that we even perceive our own worth, it's just all very, the time horizon, I think, is a little bit too short on the whole. And it makes us entirely outcomes versus process driven. I think mm. we're really, it really biases towards that at least. And even as you were speaking there, I had this image of like a whirlpool. It just feels yeah. like that it's constantly being mashed up. And in a whirlpool, there's no room for flow. Exactly. Yeah, exactly it. There's no room for flow. That's a beautiful way to put it. You are constantly at the whims of the wind, right? Like you're just being thrashed back and forth, exactly that. It's all space for reactive, not responsive thinking. Yeah. It's actually funny too. I think there's a Lao Tzu quote that, that goes directly off of what you're saying, where he says, I think it was, do you have the patience for 
the mud to settle and the water to clear, you know, just sort of that, that process of decelerating so that you can enter into flow and see things clearly too. That's lovely. I can actually, even as you say that, I feel myself calm down. Oh. <laughs> you know? I know, probably say it for myself right now too. I'm like, oh. Yeah. Oh. I, I met Kaveh first at the University of Pennsylvania Social Impact Strategy Executive Program. And now that's a mouthful. But I think one of the great learnings I took from there was how to slow down at work. And things like design thinking and psychological safety, all these amazing things I got exposed to by being part of that program. So Kaveh, maybe you talk a little bit about social impact and what that means to you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I'm so grateful, first and foremost, for that center, for that community, for, to have met you through that. I mean, it's just, just how incredible. And, and, and it goes back to, I think social impact is one of those things where you need community, you need, you need folks who can sustain and who can support you. Oftentimes, I think when we're pursuing impactful work, we are even more vulnerable than we normally would be to compassion fatigue. We are even more vulnerable than we would be to burnout. We're even more vulnerable than we would normally be to isolation and loneliness, because oftentimes the folks that are trying to drive change are doing it against status quo or doing it against the dominant logic of their communities. Oftentimes they're the only ones who are speaking up against something that's going on or one of the few. And so community is a huge part of social impact education and it keeps us accountable to a degree as well. And, and I myself first and foremost benefited from that community at the center for years. And I still do. I still am. I, my colleagues were my friends. They were my loved ones. I just actually had a colleague stay with me in Denver a few days ago. You know, it's like my, the, the folks that were in our programs are my friends or my, are my teachers in many ways too. And so there's something about that. And I, and I don't have the words for it, right. But it's this inherent sort of trust and community that I think is integral to anything that's impact driven. It's, it's hard to be the only one. And, and, and I bring that up because we really have to push up first and foremost against this idea that social impact is driven by an individual. I think that's one of the really, I understand the origins of it. And I think it stems a little bit from the industrial era and the way that we sort of look at work where we look at the light bulb and we say, Thomas Edison invented it. Well, like he also had a lab of a hundred people and had a lot of capital and, and a lot of privilege and the ability to make lots of mistakes and maximized on a lot of other folks' patents, you know, like, sure, you did a lot of great work, but let's look at the big picture. And I think a lot of major movements and moments of change in, in our, historically, it's easier from a narrative standpoint to assume one person drives that, but really it's, it's a whole movement and it's a whole community and it's, and it's so much more than that. So I think we, we were conscious of that from the get-go and ironically our roots at the centers had started with social entrepreneurship, which inherently really brings it down to the entrepreneur or entrepreneurs, right? It's still individualistic, still sort of, you could see the roots of capitalism and of entrepreneurialism sort of showing up there. And I think we quickly realized that a lot of the impact that, well, a, a few things. One is that when we focus on just entrepreneurs, we're not setting them up for success. We have to be focusing on systems and ecosystems of change. And a lot of these folks would end up just burning out a lot as well. Like we would bring in these social entrepreneurs and just train them. And then they would go out into their communities. And we found actually that a lot of these folks were reaching back and connecting with each other, connecting with the center because they were so isolated. 
And so I think for me, when it comes down to what does social impact education mean and like, how do we approach it? And this was my philosophy at the center and, and still to this day for, for a lot of the leadership programs I build out for different organizations. I think a lot of folks are much more willing to, and these are participants, I think they're much more willing upfront to say, yeah, I'm missing something around like head support. Like I need, I need cognitive frameworks. I need methods. I need to learn more. It's, it's all head, but really I think what a lot of impact driven leaders the type of support that I think they need, not only in addition to head support, the cognitive work and the, and the learning, I think they need a lot of heart support. And so that's the courage piece. How do we move and how do we keep ourselves in touch with our intrinsic motivation so that we have the courage to act, right? Because inherently impact-driven work is going to be, I don't want to say risky, but it's going to require courage. And so how do we tap into that courage? And then, so that's the heart piece. Then there's the hands piece, which is about accountability and action today. So how do we move ourselves towards a bias towards action and hands? I also sort of see as symbolizing community, being in community together, having other hands there to support you and to be there with you. And then the fourth H that I've been thinking about a lot is health as well lately. Right. And so this last piece of impact driven education for me is really creating mechanisms where, where individuals can identify when they're starting to burn out. And if they themselves can't act on it, then at least be in communities that can support them. Because if we don't take care of ourselves, there's no way we can take care of others, right? So, so that's how I see it. It's sort of like, I think folks come to us with head support, but really if we're in the business of training impact-driven leaders, we have to provide also heart, hand, and health support as well. So that's sort of my checklist if I was to put together a program. <laughs> cool. And I mean, there's a lot in there with the first thing, perhaps compassion fatigue, Cave. Mm. What is that exactly? Yeah, it's, it's super interesting. I mean, it relates to, it's called a lot of different terms out there. It's secondary trauma, secondhand trauma. There's a lot of sort of different terms. It's interesting. It's, it's, if you are in a position where you are experiencing a lot of trauma, you're seeing individuals who are going through fairly traumatic experiences, or you're holding space for those individuals. And again, this could be, you know, we say like lower, uppercase T or lowercase T trauma, right? It could be just either a really, really pivotal moment in someone's life that, that they can describe really, or, or that, that they see as being particularly traumatizing or complex trauma that builds up over time. But if you are in a position where you are constantly holding space for individuals that are going through that, you inevitably, we're human, like we're, we're empathic sponges and we will absorb that to a degree. And it's this interesting kind of phenomenon, I think, that got documented in first responders initially and in, in folks in, the, in, in a lot of the places where we first did research. We noticed that a lot of the folks working in those areas of trauma experience burnout. And so compassion fatigue is sort of characterized as this desensitization. It's almost a self-defense mechanism where we start to become really desensitized to the trauma. We actually lose our capacity for empathy to a degree, like we can't connect. We become resentful, we become, and it's not quite apathetic, but it's really our bodies are just, or in our minds are trying to protect us from absorbing something that we don't have the space to process effectively. Full up. Yeah, we're, we're completely filled up. Exactly. And that's interesting because we will do our best probably to keep going as well. Yeah, that's the thing. I think that's exactly what happens is, is, is folks, it's so hard to know when you're in the depths of that. A lot of times I think what folks do is either they just keep going or they full on quit. They just leave entirely, especially because I think a lot of our systems aren't designed to acknowledge or build around that. 
right? There, we don't have many mechanisms of support for that type of, at least in other fields. I mean, I think it's becoming more and more prevalent in, in the spaces where that research was done, but I see that in our teachers. I see that in anyone that holds space, right? Like a lot of individuals that have to hold space for others are vulnerable to compassion fatigue. Mm, I guess that is the same with knowledge-based workers even who perhaps are really stressed at work trying to keep a team together when there is no psychological safety, for example. Right. You right. Know, so is there something that leadership and leaders can learn about how to be more compassionate, perhaps, or how to recognize this, this side of things? Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting, too, because there's a distinction between sort of compassion fatigue and burnout that, that I find really helpful as well. So burnout typically we, we see as being caused by work-related attributes. It could be the job itself is really tiring. The, the workflows are frustrating. The coworkers, and there's maybe a, a poor work culture around work-life balance. Compassion fatigue is about exposure to traumatic material. And so what we might see trauma is, you know, there's lots of different definitions of trauma out there, but oftentimes categorized as something that we don't have the space to process. We don't have the space to, to be able to sort of reconcile and escape from it necessarily. And so it, it, it becomes internalized. It becomes, it becomes trauma. Dr. Uh, Sandra Bloom has done just a tremendous amount of research on this and is recently moving into, I think, the organizational behavior space. So acknowledging the fact that organizations are living entities that can in and of themselves experience and perpetuate trauma in the workforce. And right. And it's just, I mean, it makes sense when you look at these organizations from that lens and you're like, yeah, these things are living and breathing entities and they have cultures of their own. And those cultures can be traumatized and can perpetuate trauma to a degree. And the same way that we see at an individual level, you know, someone that might be experiencing PTSD, becoming hypervigilant, hypersensitive. And we see that manifest at an organizational level, at a cultural level as well, a culture where folks are just incredibly um, nervous to say the wrong thing, or where if they don't feel particularly safe to go to their um, supervisors or whoever it might be to report something. And so it's not, it's not an easy thing to fix and it takes a while. I do remember I actually had a student through Penn's exec program a few years ago, and she's actually the one that introduced me to a lot of this type of work. And she said, yeah, it is so disheartening to see folks who have experienced trauma, incredibly heartening to see how quickly and how much the mind and body wants to heal. So once it is set up in a position, sure, it might take three years or five years, but that pales in comparison to the 30 years it took to, to instill that trauma, right? And so it's just a reminder that the work is long, but it, our minds want to go in that direction. If we set ourselves up, we can go in that direction. And so I think in terms of where to start, if you were an individual who was leading a team, I would say it's like, I think we tend to jump to the many a lot of times with our solutions, right? And this is where we lose folks. We tend to jump to scale. We tend to drive to systems and we try to design around systems. And I think that's where we lose folks. That's where we lose trust. That's where we lose belonging systems. That's such a not empathic word, right? Like how do we design a system that's compassionate? Well, compassionate is about like, the word literally means to feel the suffering of another, right? Like to, to feel. And it starts with that. It starts with dyads. It starts with individuals. And I think we have to learn how to sort of interrogate and acknowledge our biases towards moving to systems and scale immediately. And then acknowledge that a lot of these interventions have to be 
created slowly over time. I mean, your solutions will move at the pace of trust. And that starts with individuals and talking to each other, listening to each other, repeating back what they've heard, making sure they got it right. And then those pairs into small groups, those small groups, right? It's, it's there's no other way in my mind for this to scale up. It has to start at that individual level and leadership needs to be bought into it the entire way through. I mean, it has to also come from the, from that, that you can't fake that you can't, there's people can smell that dishonest. I don't want to say dishonesty, but you know, it's, you got to walk the hypocrisy, walk. perhaps hypocrisy. Yeah. You, you have to walk the walk when it comes to this work. You really there's no do. other way. Yeah, you really do. And I, it's, it's an environment, isn't it? I mean, that's what we're talking about as well. And if the environment is correct, whether that's a global climate environment or an organizational environment, things will thrive. And I think we don't focus on the environment as much. We focus more perhaps on purpose and meaning and, and the why, when actually perhaps looking at the foundation is often where we need to grow our businesses from. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly that. I mean, and I love that too, because it's a lot of the times our purpose and our and our vision work, I mean, it goes back to the why to, the deg- to a degree, but we have to acknowledge the who <laughs> and, the, and the why. Who, who are we that's coming together? And, and how are people feeling right now? And how do we start from that point and connect us to the why as well? So I feel like there's probably a, a graphic here that we could come up with together that represents this, but it really starts with for me, at least, it's always started with how do you create a space where someone feels comfortable to show up as they already are? And I think in a world where we have a lot of teams and accountability structures and we're measuring folks about performance all the time and folks feel like they have to, I mean, imposter syndrome is just all over the place, right? In terms of us feeling like we need to act or behave or produce a certain way. And how do we create cultures and spaces where folks are actively given permission to show up as they are and allow folks space to showcase their passions and showcase their values and know that their work is going to respect those values. In one way, it doesn't sound like a lot to ask for. That's the thing, I think. But it is, I think the point you made about systems and processes and and perhaps process is okay, but the systems and the scales are the things that need to be relaxed a little bit. And it it's a little, a bit what I learned a lot from, from you guys at, at the center as well, I think is about failure, but actually it's okay to try a couple of different things with different people and it's okay for them not to work as long as you're, you're on that road to trying to get things to work. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly it. Yeah, I think failure is a huge piece of this. There's a few principles, I think. One is that exactly that when we jump and we start to design just for the scales, we lose the individual voices, we lose the nuance, and we jump to these workflows and to these processes. Grant, when you're designing something that's at scale, you've inherently increased your the risk of that succeeding or not succeeding. So when you're designing something that's at scale already, 
you incorporate so much more risk, right, in the implementation of that, and, and it becomes so much more dire if that actually fails. That's the other reason we kind of love this approach of, you know, we always say to design for many, you have to design for some, and to design for some, you have to design for one. And, you know, when you design for one, it reduces the risk. You're able to, you know, it's not even necessarily that you make, you, you, there's a lot more room for failure, but you can catch those failures in conversation instead of in a product, right? I could have a conversation with you and say, well, what if X, Y, Z? And you can say no. And then that's a time that's, if I hadn't had that conversation, I kind of went along with my assumption at scale, implemented it, and then found out that failure once it's been implemented or piloted. I mean, again, much more potentially dire than conversation with an individual where I had already established trust and had had buy-in, right? It's sort of the approach is an inductive approach to creating versus a deductive one is another way to look at it. And that's, I think, one thing that we've really emphasized. And that's where a lot of design thinking and equity center design thinking principles kick in. Yeah. And there's also something that it, it seems to reduce the pressure somehow if you're designing for one. If you're thinking mm -hmm. like, okay, I, I just need to get this underway to help one person and then, then it's two and then it's four and, and so on. But right at the beginning, it leaves you open to trying various ways. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It make, and it makes it personal. It makes it approachable. It makes it, we can't. And, and again, it's, I don't know about you all, but like, I have such an inclination to just spin into the macro. Like I'm so concerned about scale. And, and again, I, if I interrogate the roots of that, I wonder where they come from. And I think some of it must be from my like immigrant background and being fairly, you know, just being raised to be ambitious and make an impact on the world. And so I just keep jump. I find myself just constantly biasing towards scale and you're absolutely right. I mean, the real insights lie in those like individual conversations. I always think I always use the OXO kitchen utensils as a, as a case study that I just find super fascinating, but the, there are these super like ergonomic kind of like homeware products, like kitchenware products, and they make incredible ice cream scoops and can openers. And there are all these really nice, sturdy grips. And the um, founder, I think, had actually originally created the inspiration for those was his wife who had severe rheumatoid arthritis. And she, I think, loved to work and loved to cook. And so he created these products that made it a little bit easier for her to keep doing what she loved. And it turns out that everyone benefits from those, right? It's like they actually made it easy for everyone. So it was designed for one. It was designed for an individual with severe rheumatoid arthritis. But it turns out all of us benefit from that. And I think Microsoft has this really gorgeous new framework around inclusive design, where they sort of say, you, we have to think of these in different phases. And I'm pretty sure a framework that they offer is, you, you, know, you can design something for folks that might permanently need that solution, but that permanent solution could also be designed for someone that temporarily needs that solution or for someone who circumstantially needs that solution. And so I think the example they gave is, you know, someone that might may have lost a limb and that you might design a solution for that person that's permanent, but that same solution might benefit someone with a broken arm. And that same solution might benefit a new parent who has to carry a child in his arm, right? It's, we're still, when we design for one, we can actually design for many at the same time, but we have to start with the one. Mm -hmm. Because yeah, I really like that because otherwise you're just off, aren't you? And you've got a one size fits all approach and it doesn't. Yep. 
And that's where we lose people. That's where things become inequitable, right? That's where we design for the majority. That's where we maintain status quo. That's where dominant logic comes in. We have to design, we have to start at the one and it has to be slow. <laughs> you know, it's all of these. And, and you can even just take that down to performance reviews and, and everything like that in the workplace that is kind of just standardized. I mean, that's often what you, I mean, I would have done that myself working in finance, standardized, 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 but it doesn't always work. And something I wanted to go back to Cave as well is we talked a little bit about trauma and I don't want to go into trauma and a lot here, but I think it's just, we often think as trauma as something that is really bad, like a massive car accident or a death in the family or whatever, but a huge life event. And I think that definition or understanding of trauma is changing. So I suppose in the workplace, you might be working with people who have experienced trauma in their lives they've responded to an event differently than you might. And for them, it's a trauma. And that's a difficult space to navigate. Yeah, and it really is. And, and I think for me, what I've done is instead of, I just assume that we all have experienced some form of trauma or another, you know, at, at, statistically we have, <laughs> at least when we look at some of the stats and folks, arrive into a space with context and with experiences that are going to impact the way that certain stimuli are perceived and interpreted and how we respond to them based on those prior experiences. That I think is just at its core fact, <laughs> you know, like inevitably. And a lot, in, a lot, in many of those cases, Folks, I think we're now finally finding language to acknowledge that some of those experiences have come together to create complex trauma. Uh, so either, again, capital T is I think how we've sort of seen it before, post-traumatic stress disorder, really kind of these zeroing in around these traumatic events, but we're also realizing that complex trauma exists and that's, that's multiple traumas that have emerged, right? And again, in these different ways, it's interpersonal dynamics that have created trauma, this feeling of being trapped or of being trapped, even this pandemic, right? Like a lot of us have felt trapped and felt like we couldn't go somewhere that maps to complex trauma to a degree, right? That can in and of itself be a traumatic experience. And so acknowledging that that exists, I think is the first step. And the fact that we are in these work environments that we spend majority of our waking hours in where these, if we really want to address, I think, workplace adjustments and workplace changes, we also have to acknowledge what folks are, are carrying with them in these spaces as well. I don't think we, we operate in this. I, for me, I feel like this idea that we are actually capable of code switching so quickly, like the individual, you know, we just work-life balance. You leave life and you go to work and you leave work and you, it doesn't No, <laughs> it's like we're deeply human that's why we want purpose in our work right if we if, if we didn't want purpose in our work then you know we could separate everything out but i just feel like we have to acknowledge the humanity of our colleagues and part of that and that means acknowledging trauma as well yeah every part of us you can't pick and choose <laughs> Yeah. You can't say just bring the, to work the, the good stuff and leave all the crap stuff at home or whatever. It's like you are who you are. And 
maybe that's the one of the last things we could talk about is your stories cave make you who you are and i know storytelling is one of your fortes also oh i appreciate that i don't know i i well i i find stories just so to be so powerful i feel like they are I mean, there are many things, right? They're in many ways like the connective tissue of our societies and our systems, going back to that, right? It's it's what what ties us together. What It's what aligns massive groups of individuals around a common goal, a common cause. It communicates values. It communicates almost like an operating system. A, a good story tells you how you ought to behave, who you can become, who you were, who we are as a collective. I mean, it's just, there's so much power in a story. And I just find them fascinating as tools for social movement, social movements as a whole, but also as tools to, it's a double-edged sword. It could be, I think it was Albert Camus who said, we're, we're not for the storyteller, civilization would destroy itself. But I also feel like on the flip side, the storyteller also has the power to destroy civilization as well, to a degree, right? It's, it really can go either way. And yeah, I just, I, I find a lot of fascination in, in, in the stories that we tell ourselves before we go into work and the stories that we tell one another, the stories that we tell others to mobilize them. And I feel like there's a tremendous amount of opportunity there for us to, to, to sort of dig into those. Mm. And understanding your own story it's you know that can give you I think great confidence as well mm -hmm. if you can keep together who you are even if it's looking back to bring it forward but there is there's power in knowing your story absolutely and in, and in some cases reframing and retelling your story too right it's I think a lot of times we find folks coming into some of our programs and, and myself included right where my story perpetuates an inhibiting belief it perpetuates something that is not entirely true about myself. I'm telling the story about maybe something that I couldn't do or something that I didn't live up to. And, and these are the stories that are in my mind. And, and there is an opportunity to rewrite those stories to a degree. It goes through another draft and, and, those story, and there's truth to them uh, regardless. And so, yeah, that's exactly right. I feel like it's so important for us to look back and, 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 and you can't do this all the time. I mean, that's the other thing I was going to say, even with the workforce and the system stuff. This is the other thing I sort of like about design thinking is that it, it systematizes when to be in these spaces. And so I think these moments of introspection and of, and of looking through your stories and whatnot are incredibly valuable. That said, if we were in this space all the time, I, like, I mean, I, I personally would just emotionally burn out. Yeah, I would be in a constant existential spiral <laughs> into the into the depths of my existence. And it's not easy to be in those spaces. I think we have to figure out how to time block those and then sort of go back and try them out in the real world and then come back and reevaluate them. And I think that's one of the things I like about design thinking is that it gives you permission and a cadence to sort of switch between these modalities of implementation and interrogation, maybe. And I think this introspection work follows, ought to follow that too. So I don't think it's easy, to, you know, but even systematizing, maybe it's an hour in the morning, maybe it's once a quarter with your friends, but it's hard to be in that space all the time, I think. And it's okay to give yourself permission not to be in that space all the time. And also, I'm not sure you'll learn if you're completely in that space all the time exactly. either, because it's like anything, you won't see the wood for the trees after a while. Exactly right. Yeah, you still you have to still go out into the world and try it and practice it and not try to change it and, you know, gather information, gather information about how this lives. And that's where a lot of the compassion work kicks. in. I think that's where some of the self compassion work kicks in as well. 
I know Kristen Neff has just been doing incredible work over in UT Austin around this, but she sort of characterizes self-compassion as being the buffer between who you were and who you can become. And I think a lot of the times, yeah, you go out into the world and you will fail. And even if your intention was to, to try something a little bit differently, yeah, you will stumble. You won't get it right exactly. But the way that we can mine insight and mine growth out of that is through self-compassion. I think we have to give ourselves, we have to tell ourselves that it's okay that we did that. And, and sure, we have to become better and we will, and we're on that road. But if we don't have that initial sort of self-compassion foundation, we're also at risk of just defining ourselves. And again, playing into those stories and saying, well, I guess that's just who I am. I'm just someone that can't get up early in the morning. I'm just someone that is going to, you know, keep forgetting my mom's birthday or whatever it might be. And we just codify that belief. Or constantly just chastising ourselves. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Which just makes it even harder <laughs> to do yeah. anything, you know, yeah. to change. Wow. Well, we've been all over. But <laughs> well, I'd like to leave with, with your the final, the quote that I saw on your website, Kave, which is by Khalil Gibran. And maybe you just tell us that quote and what it means to you. Yeah, absolutely. I love this quote so much. Work is love made visible. And I think the full quote, let's see if I can find it. Yeah, work is love made visible. And if you cannot work with love, but only with distaste, it is better that you should leave your work and sit at the gate of the temple and take alms of those who work with joy. And so, yeah, that's the full quote. But (laughs) I think for me, it's that it goes back to flow just to bring it, I guess, full circle for me. And it's not always like, I mean, that's the other thing I was going to say is that it won't always be like this. And that's where I think self-compassion and that's where community and that's where just to tie everything that we've talked to, it won't always be like this. And, and work, work being love made visible is in many ways an aspiration for me, but it is one that I keep close to my heart. And I know in my heart of hearts that it is possible, even in the dark, even in like the darker days and in moments that I can't. I surround myself with people who are pursuing that work and they themselves might not be there, but we, it is so important to surround ourselves with individuals that continue to remind us that it's possible that the work that we do in this generation around that will create a much more effective starting point for others in future generations as well. This is, this goes way beyond us in our time. And we, I would love to hand over a series of sort of beliefs and systems that maybe undo a little bit of the industrial era for the next generation, you know, maybe set them up with a little bit more success in terms of integrating their purpose and themselves and their work. And I think humans are just incredibly, I mean, we look at history, we are resourceful. There's so much ingenuity at hand. We, we, we resilient, resilient. Yeah. Deeply resilient. And we ought to give ourselves space to do that work and to acknowledge the love and the joy that goes into that work as well amazing i wish i could talk to you for longer but we've got to leave it there Kave. and if somebody would like to connect with you Kave, what's the best way oh yeah absolutely i am absolutely available my my email is Kave, so just k-a-v as in victor e-h as in harry at upenn.edu Kave at upenn.edu so anytime yeah i'm i 
I'm always excited to chat. I know at the center, we have an office hours for life policy. So anyone that goes through our programs, <laughs> I look forward and I hope to have these conversations because we are all in this lifelong pursuit together at this point, be it in be it in a few months that we connect or a few years or a few decades. But I am, yeah, I'm just grateful to be in your presence, Susan. And thank you for doing this work and for creating a space for folks to be able to navigate this together. I think that's it. Cool. And just folks that, that go and go ahead and do that, just do such a service for others. So really appreciate you. And thanks for, thanks for, this is such a great way to start my week. Great. Thank you, Kave. Bye now. Bye. Imagine if every day you enjoy work, express yourself fully and exceed expectations. I believe we're all entitled to have this and that the future of work life will be changed by those who strive for and create more fulfilling work lives for themselves, their colleagues, their teams, and wider organisation. Thank you for listening today. And if you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review and share it with someone you know who is curious like you.